We're in Luke chapter 13. If you would open your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 13. And let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for Colorado. We thank you for Colorado Springs, the, the beautiful weather that we, we enjoy here. We thank you even more for your loving care for us, your presence with us, that you're gracious and compassionate and merciful. And as we've just sang, you're, you're truly great. You're awesome. We ask that you'd speak to us through your word, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you'd teach us, that you'd give us ears to hear and, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. In these 21 verses of Luke 13, what really stood out to me is that Jesus is bold. When you really step back and take a look at some of the things that Christ says, they're strong, they're bold. He's going to have some of those challenges uh, for us. But then we see Christ's compassion, that he's bold, but he's also compassionate. There's a woman who has the spirit of infirmity. She's, her back is stooped, looking at the ground for 18 years. And Jesus sees her and pursues her and heals her. So he's both bold, but he's also compassionate. He truly is the lion and the lamb, God in human flesh. When we think of Christ, we're amazed that he can embody truth, speak truth, be bold in truth, not back down from truth, but also be compassionate, loving, gentle, and caring. There's some that are attracted to Jesus, rightfully so, but they have reservations about the Father. However, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father, that he's the express image of, of the Father. So Jesus is representing to us the Father. We have a heavenly Father that's bold in truth, but is also compassionate as well. As we read the scriptures this morning, I would just encourage you, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is he really highlighting to you as we go through this? What is it that he would want to feed your soul with uh, this morning? Verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is kind of a strange verse. Or like, what is, what is this that there were those giving sacrifices, but then Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices? It appears that there were those that were killed by Pilate as they were worshiping. And this was a well-known event uh, throughout Israel. And Jesus is aware of it. The disciples are aware of it. And Jesus uses this to teach a, a principle, a truth. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? Christ is the master at asking questions. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners because their lives were taken by Pilate? There's this idea amongst the Jewish people at the time of the disciples that if you were blessed, it was because of your righteousness. It's because you've done the right thing. But if you have challenge and difficulty and suffering in your life, it must be because of sin. It's easy to understand why they would adopt this view because they're living under the old covenant, the law, where God said, if you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, your curse. So their assumption was, well, if there's blessing in my life, it must be because of my obedience. But if there's difficulty in my life, it must be because of sin or unrighteousness. So Jesus challenges this and, and he's saying, well, is it because they were worse sinners that they were killed by Pilate? 
Now, thankfully, we live under the new covenant of God's grace, that we're blessed because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Also, Job's friends really had this same worldview, this same understanding. Well, Job has suffering in his life, so it must be because he sinned. Job lost his kids. All of his kids died at one event. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. He did keep his marriage intact, and his wife was a real encourager, said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you just get this, this over with, right? As a couple, they're really going through it. Has these friends that rally around them, and it would have been much better if they just kept their mouths shut. But they're assuming, Job, you must have sinned in order to have this type of suffering. So they're just tightening the screws on Job that he would confess his sin to the Lord. Unfortunately, this idea is still alive and well today, isn't it? As they're suffering, it's easy to assume, well, the reason that I'm suffering, someone else is suffering, is because of sin. Now, does suffering bring sin? Yes. Are there times that difficulty comes into our life because of our sin? Yes, we've all experienced that. But is there some suffering that happens in life that's not directly related to our sin. Absolutely. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Jesus gives us another example. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Christ says, it wasn't that they were greater sinners, that they were killed by Pilate, but says, unless you repent, you also will perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Shiloh fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other who dwelt in Jerusalem? There was this event that took place in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam falling and killing 18 people. And Jesus says, did that happen because they were worse sinners? Someone dying in a car accident, did that happen because they were worse sinners? Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus clears up for us that not all suffering is because of sin, but he does show the reality that we're all sinners. And that unless we repent to trust the gospel, that we too will perish. And not just the physical death, but eternal separation from the Lord. Jesus describes hell in sobering terms, doesn't he? The lake of fire, a worm that dies not. I don't know what that's all about, but I don't want to find out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. Christ taught repentance. John the Baptist taught repentance. The disciples taught repentance. What does repentance mean? It's a change of mind and a change of direction. Realizing that I'm a sinner and turning from my sin. And it's important in understanding the gospel that I'm a sinner. As we read the scriptures, it reveals to us that I need a savior. I think that deep down in your heart, in your life, you know that. You know that compared to God's holiness, you're, you're a sinner. And as the Holy Spirit is drawing us to Christ, there's this acknowledgement of our sin and, and turning away from sin and turning to Christ and trusting that he died for our sins and rose again and inviting him to be the Lord of our life. So this is one of the bold statements of Christ that he loves us enough to confront us on our sin. As we have opportunities to share the gospel, don't shy away from repentance. Don't 
shy away from sharing repentance. It, it sounds so heavy, doesn't it? For some reason, the word repentance, oh, it, it's the most freeing word, isn't it? Haven't you found it to be freeing to turn from sin, to trust Christ, and for Christ to lift off the weight of, of, of our sin? So we go on into verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Figs continue to grow uh, in Israel. It's a part of the landscape in Israel. There's verses in the Old Testament that liken the children of Israel to figs, to a fig tree. And here a man plants a fig tree in his vineyard for the purpose of seeking out figs, right? In our backyard, probably about 10 years ago, uh, we planted a peach tree and a plum tree and they're cross-pollinating. Uh, and there was a few years there where they produced some, some fruit and now they're just kind of these sad trees in our backyard, right? <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever seen like a funky peach tree here in Southern Colorado where it's like, you are the lamest looking peach tree. That, I, that I've ever seen. It's like, why are we still having you out there in the backyard? And then you realize, oh, we live in the high desert. Nothing grows in Colorado Springs, right? <laughs> but the reason you plant fruit trees is you want fruit. You want peaches. You want plums. You want these figs. But there was no fruit that was found. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. So the owner of the vineyard comes to his keeper and says, each year I've come for these figs for three years, haven't found any fruit. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Israel largely rejecting Christ, largely not responding to the goodness of God, but the grace of God to say, you know what? I'm going to dig around the roots, going to pack it with fertilizer that it might bear fruit. And we see God's unconditional love to the nation of Israel. Jews being saved, the disciples being saved, Saul being saved. And though many have rejected Christ, there's been those Jews that have come to know Christ as their Savior. Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak of God's commitment to the nation of Israel, how God's going to restore them in the future. The principle, the truth that Jesus is speaking here in his boldness is, yes, fruit in the nation of Israel, but also fruit in our lives as well. God is seeking out fruit in our lives. Now, this fruit is not to earn or deserve salvation. It's not that, well, here's the, my fruit, so God, I'm your child. But it's evidence of the fact that God is in our lives, that Jesus has forgiven our sins. Not perfection, but fruit. Our lives are not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. We're going to continue to wrestle with sin. So what's some biblical fruit? There's a lot of different types of fruit. Hebrews 13 verse 15 talks about the sacrifice of praise from our lips. Did you know you were giving fruit unto God this morning? As you worship the Lord, as you choose gratitude, as you choose to be thankful, that's fruit unto the Lord. Probably before you knew Christ as your Savior, you were not too thankful unto God, right? That's something that the Lord is, has worked in your life. Giving 
monetarily, choosing to give tithes and offerings to the Lord, choosing to meet a need. That, that's fruit unto the Lord. Philippians 4 verse 17 highlights that. Loving people is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you find yourself loving and caring for people in a unique and different way as Christ has gotten a hold of your life? That is fruit. Winning souls, Romans 1.13, is, is fruit. Doing works of righteousness, James 3 verse 18, is, is fruit. So God in his love, as he seeks us with his grace, desires for our lives to, to have fruit. Now be careful as you study this section because the enemy knows the scripture as well and he likes to bring us to a place of, of condemnation. And when you hear a section of scripture like this, you're like, I don't know if there's enough fruit in my life. I'm not sure that I'm saved. And you walk out beating yourself up this morning and there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is gonna bring you back to Christ, bring you back to the gospel bring you to a place of depending upon Christ, allowing God to do a work in your life. But condemnation is self-focused. Woe is me, I am such a failure. We're not looking at the cross, we're looking at our, our own sin. In verse 10, we move from the bold statements of Christ to the compassion of Christ. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This was Christ's custom. It's his Saturday morning, it's the Sabbath. It's when the Jews would gather together in the synagogue. And Jesus would come and teach. This is the last time in the Gospel of Luke that we see Jesus teaching on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had the spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and in no way could raise herself up. Here's a woman who's at the synagogue and she has a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. And this is unique, the way that this is worded in the Gospel is it seems to be this physical ailment that's in her body. She's, she's stooped over. She's looking at the ground everywhere that she goes. She's looking at the ground, unable to, to look up. The Bible describes it as a spirit of infirmity. Then Jesus says in a few more verses that she was bound by Satan. So what was going on in her physical body was a result of a demonic attack. Now we got to talk about that a little bit because... Before you know it, there's some people that are going around and you have a cold and it's the demon that gave you a cold, right? It's like, I don't, I don't know that that's any demonic activity. We live in a fallen world where there are viruses with fallen bodies that will wear out. So not every sickness or disease is a result of a demonic attack. I mean, do you want to live forever in this state? So this body's got to wear out at some point. The, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed. So, so don't think because of this verse that every type of physical ailment or disease or cancer is a result of demonic activity. However, in this case it is. It's very clear that what's going on in this woman's life is a result of this spirit of infirmity. We know from Paul's life that he had a thorn in the flesh, and he described this thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan. God allowed Satan to give him this thorn in the flesh. Paul asks the Lord, would you take this away from me? God said no three times. 
My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. What the enemy meant to destroy Paul ended up being used in Paul's life where the weakness allowed him to rely upon the Lord. And Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness. I'll accept this in my life because the power of Christ is resting upon me. I love verse 12. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Jesus saw her. He saw her. How many did not see this this woman? Or because her body wasn't functioning normally, they looked away from her. But Christ saw her. Christ had compassion on her. And Jesus calls out to her. Jesus pursues her. In many of the miracles, individuals are seeking Christ, like blind Bartimaeus, crying out, Lord, have mercy upon me. And Jesus responds to that which is absolutely appropriate. But in this particular miracle, this woman is not necessarily seeking out Jesus for healing. Jesus is seeking out her. We have a Savior who is present with us as we gather. In Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus writes letters to the churches, and he's walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks, the golden lampstands, which is the church. Jesus is here this morning. And I want to encourage you, he sees you. A lot of times we're not seen at Walmart, for sure. For sure at Costco, you're not seen. How many times have you almost lost your life at Costco, right? <laughs> we all get so selfish at, at Costco. Got to try to save time, even if I have to run over an old lady, right? It's like, <laughs> what, what has gotten into me? You're not seen at, at Costco, I won't even mention the gas line when you're waiting to get gas. Sometimes you're not seen in your own family. Uh, maybe you feel unseen in your marriage. Maybe you see un, feel unseen by your, your parents. Maybe at your job you feel unseen. I go, I go, I work hard, no one seems to care, I feel taken advantage of. You can feel unseen amongst the people of God. You can come into church this morning and you're like, does anybody see? Does anybody notice? Does anybody know that I'm here? Yes, Jesus knows that you're here. And even better, he's coming after the area of brokenness in our life. And it may be the physical aspect, some physical aspect in our lives. And he may choose to bring physical healing or he may not. God doesn't always heal. Sometimes he chooses to allow that suffering to stay like he did in the Apostle Paul's life. But he sees, he sees that, that brokenness. Is it brokenness in a relationship? He sees. Are you carrying a sense of discouragement, anxiety, depression? Is there an area of sin where you go, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm like this. And I've been like this for a really long time. And I'm broken and I can't fix it. I can't make myself straight. It's been 18 years of, of struggling with this sin, but God sees. He's compassionate. He knows you. He created you. He designed you. He knows the number of hairs on your head or the lack thereof. For some of you, you make it a lot easier on the Lord to count the number of hairs on your head. The, his thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea, and he's thinking 
thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. He sees and he pursues. And he said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Jesus is the ultimate chiropractor right here. Just puts his hands on her. She's healed. Speaks to her in a way of endearment and respect. Woman was a title of endearment and respect. Be loosed from your infirmity. Be loosed from the spirit of infirmity. Jesus could have simply spoke, but he chose to lay his hands on her. That restorative touch that communicates his love. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Love her response. As she was healed, she was glorified by the Lord. If you know Christ as your Savior, you've experienced his restorative touch upon your life. A lot of us would go, I would love to to be this lady and to be healed in, in this way. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sin. Our greatest need is for us to become the child of God. The greatest miracle, this woman experienced a a great miracle. You've experienced a greater miracle to be adopted as the child of God, to have the spirit of God living inside of you, to have the assurance of everlasting life. And as Jesus touches our lives, he's able to make us straight. Isn't restorative work cool? It's cool, isn't it? Whether it's, you know, finding an old ax and restoring it to its rightful condition or finding an old pickup truck and, and restoring it. Man, I'm a sucker for restorative projects. I love it because it's the gospel on display. It's, it's what Jesus does in our lives. He makes us straight. And as he makes us straight, we're able to glorify the Lord and to give those broken areas of our lives to the Lord to allow him to pursue those, those broken areas of our lives and bring his restorative touch. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. What a response. This guy's a lot of fun to be around, right? He gets angry. It's like, takes it out on the crowd. You could come any of these other six days, but don't come on the Sabbath to be healed. He viewed Jesus healing this woman on the Sabbath day as breaking the Sabbath day. In Exodus, God writes and says, if you work on the Sabbath day, you shall die. That's how serious God was about the Sabbath. This ruler of the synagogues thinks that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath Apparently, to help anybody on the Sabbath was constant to work. They've added layers to the command of God. In verse 15, then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan had bound, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Jesus purposefully, strategically uses this language of didn't you loose your ox or your donkey? Didn't you go take them out of their stall and lead them to water? And here's this woman who's in bondage to the enemy, and I've loosed her. She's the daughter of Abraham. 
I wonder if this woman, if this was one of those Saturdays that she was struggling going to the synagogue. Ever have those mornings where it's just a little bit more difficult to go to church? You feel like staying home, you feel like doing other things, you feel like sleeping in. It's difficult when you feel like that and you're the pastor, right? <laughs> you feel real bad about yourself when, when you're having one of those mornings and you're like, okay, Lord, get me going here, right? How many times have you pressed through that and you've come even though you don't feel like it and God meets you? What if this woman would have decided, I'm going to stay home today. I'm not going. I don't feel like it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. All those different things that enter our hearts and our minds. And she came. And after 18 years of suffering, she's loosed and she's made straight and she's glorifying the Lord. We know that she's an Israelite. She's the daughter of Abraham in verse 17. And when he had said these things, all the adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. His adversaries had no words. They couldn't continue to argue on this. And the multitudes rejoice. It's almost like the multitudes are like, finally, somebody stuck it to the man. Somebody stuck it to this ruler of the synagogue. And this is so refreshing. And this is so absolutely freeing. By the way, Jesus healing on the Sabbath is choosing his death. He knows that this makes the religious leaders so angry and upset. And he's willfully laying his life down by choosing to heal on the Sabbath. He cared about this woman enough to say, I'm not waiting till Sunday. This is the moment. I want to do this work in her heart and in her life. Jesus follows this up with two parables. And it's really important to study these two parables in context. Because these are very popular parables, but notice in verse 18, then he said. So it's on the heels of this ruler of the synagogue getting so upset and accusing him of violating the Sabbath. He said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden and it grew and became a large tree and the birds of the air nestled in its branches. There's two primary interpretations of both of these uh, parables. And one is positive and one is negative. And pastors and commentaries have debated both of these views for centuries. So let's lay those two views out and then we can argue it over lunch, okay? But the first view is positive. That the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. That, that it's small. But then it grows into this large tree. It seems like exponential growth. Mustard seeds don't normally produce large trees. A mustard tree is smaller in, in Israel, but it's become a large tree. And then the birds of the air come and find, find refuge. So the kingdom of God starts small, grows, and we find refuge in its shade, which is true of, of the kingdom of God. The negative view is we have this mustard seed and it grows. And as the kingdom of God grows, then the birds of the air, which are negative, come and rest inside of his branches. Speaking of the corruption and the deception that happens amidst and amongst God's people. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, talked about the birds of the air in a negative context. The birds of the air came and robbed the, the seed. 
In context here, I fall that Jesus is actually giving a warning. That he's warning about the ruler of the synagogue. Here, inside of Israel, religion has become such this big deal. This dominating force. But they've missed a relationship with God. There's corruption that has come inside of the synagogue. And it's right in the position of the ruler of the synagogue. The birds of the air have come inside. The second parable is similar. And again, he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Leaven is yeast, a little bit of yeast affecting the whole loaf. Three measures of meal would be about 40 liters, which would make enough bread for a meal for 100 people. So this is not just your, your normal amount of bread that is being made, but it's a, it's a large batch of bread that is made. Again, it speaks of this exponential growth. We're able to look at scripture of how leaven is interpreted. Leaven's used throughout the scripture. In every other context, it's negative. Remember in the Old Testament with the Feast of Unleavened Bread? You weren't able to eat any bread with yeast in it for seven days, and it was a time of reflection to go, where has leaven entered into my life? Where, where has sin entered into my life? In Matthew 16, Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, the pride, the selfishness that can so easily come into our hearts and our lives. Paul used leaven in a warning context as well. So Jesus may be using this in a positive context. He may be saying that the kingdom of God starts small and it permeates the whole loaf again, which the kingdom of God absolutely does. Or he's warning and saying, hey, it's so easy for corruption. It's so easy for, for sin to, to enter in. And we see this right in front of us with the ruler of the synagogue. I think Jesus is confronting the ruler of the synagogue with these two parables. These parables are not some obscure event. We have this ruler of the synagogue getting so angry over the healing. And then Jesus is like, I've got a couple stories for you. And if you're in the shoes of the ruler of the synagogue, you understand the context of leaven. And now Jesus is calling out leaven while you're so far from the heart of God. But either of you, you're on safe ground. Either of you, you're on safe ground. Do you know the scriptures are going to last for eternity? We're going to be able to ask Jesus about this. And that's what's difficult about some of the parables is Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation. So when we get home to be with the Lord, we'll be able to, to ask that, the Lord the, the interpretation. What is it that the Holy Spirit has for you in this section of scripture this morning? Is, is it the bold part of Christ's teaching? Is it this reality that if you don't repent, you, you will perish? Do you need to receive Christ as your Savior this morning? I believe that all of us know whether we've trusted Christ for salvation or not. And if you haven't yet trusted Christ for salvation, what are you waiting for? The reality of our sin, but the reality of our Savior. To turn from sin, to turn to Christ and to repent and believe, Jesus, you died for my sins, you rose again, be the Lord of my life. And Jesus will grant you an everlasting life, forgive you of your, whole, of, the, of your sins, fill you with the Holy Spirit. We're going to enter back into worship, and as we do, if you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to come. I know it's a long walk. This is probably the longest walk in the city. 
even if you're sitting in the fifth row. But to be able to humble yourself and say, I want to be the child of God. Those online, if you're like, man, I need to trust Christ as my Savior, you can go to the chats, the comments, indicate a decision of Christ. We've got a team that's ready to minister to you and respond. But then, is it this area of Christ's compassion that you need to respond to this morning? Do you believe that, that Jesus is here? Do you believe that he is pursuing the broken part of your life? We tend to want to hide our brokenness, don't we? If I was this woman that was stooped for 18 years, I wouldn't like how my body would draw undue attention to, to myself. And we're broken. And as we're, we're broken, to allow Christ to come and to put his restorative touch in our heart, in our life. And as we sing, we're going to invite you to come and receive prayer. In James chapter 5, we're told if you're sick, to call for the elders of the church, to ask for them to pray for you, anoint you with oil, to see if the Lord would bring, bring healing. Every service, there's the opportunity to do that here at RMC. Or you can come and, and ask for prayer. We'll anoint you with oil. A little bit of olive oil on your hand or your forehead. Sometimes I'm tempted to just pour it all over you, right? Just a, but no, just a little bit of anointing oil. And we're going to pray for God's will. And sometimes God heals. And sometimes he, he doesn't heal. And allow him to decide. If you're from this understanding that God always heals, I don't think that that's biblical because what we mentioned with the Apostle Paul. He may choose to allow it to remain in your life, but to give it to the Lord and say, God, it's up to you. If you want to receive prayer, and we'll trust the Lord if he bring, brings healing. But maybe it's something deeper. It's not something that's physical, but you're like, man, I've struggled in this way for a lot of years. There's this hurt, there's this pain, there's this disappointment, this relationship with my spouse, my kids, my singleness, this sense of discouragement and depression that I can't seem to, to shake. To simply come before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. It may be coming down to receive prayer, or it might be in this last song that you sit instead of stand and just talk with the Lord and say, Lord, you, you know this area of brokenness in, in my life. It may be asking someone sitting close to you to pray with you, saying, hey, would you, would you pray with me? Would you, would you pray for me? But allow the Lord to have this time. But I'm encouraged this morning that we have a Savior who's both bold and compassionate. So would you stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you love us, that where two or three are gathered, you're in our midst, that you see us, that you see our brokenness. And where we need to hear truth, we pray we would be open to that. Where we need to be challenged and be convicted. And where we need your compassion. And we do try to hide our sin and hide our brokenness. And we bring that to you. And Jesus, we ask that if you desire to bring healing this morning for your glory, would you do it? Lord, if you want to 
bring physical healing to some this morning. We, we lift up parts of our bodies that are broken and hurting, and we know that you're not limited. But if you choose not to heal, we, we trust that as well. Jesus, if it's your will, would you lift off discouragement? Would you lift off hopelessness and despair? We do know that there's a, a spiritual battle and ways that the enemy is attacking. Jesus, would you be gracious to bring breakthrough? Lord, where there's brokenness in marriage, where there's been effort, there's been work, but it seems like it, it's just getting worse, Jesus, would you be gracious? Would you put your restorative touch upon that, that marriage? Or we don't know what you desire to do, but, but so many times we just assume that you don't want to work in our brokenness. And this morning we bring our brokenness to you. So would you speak to us? We want to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen.